The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that the citizens of Crimea, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. Better late than that never. The UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and this should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. This is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. Welcome to Article 38, the official podcast of the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. My name is Amma Choudhury, and I'm speaking to you today from the permanent mission of Pakistan to the United Nations. With me is Rebecca Axelson, the secretary for ILS. I'm excited to be here, and I look forward to our discussion. On this episode, we will be exploring the Pakistani position on Kashmir in the context of international law. I want to place an emphasis on the, on the Pakistani part because what Pakistan may see as a justification through, through like a treaty or a resolution for its position may differ from other peoples and nations. To present the Pakistani position, we're going to talk to Ms. Saima Saleem, who is currently a counselor at the Permanent Mission of Pakistan to the United Nations, where she covers human rights and humanitarian affairs in a variety of UN organs. She holds a Master's of Law from the Geneva Academy, specializing in international humanitarian and human rights law. Ms. Saleem also holds a Fulbright Fellowship in Advanced Studies in International Affairs from Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Prior to her current posting, Saima Saleem was the first secretary on human rights for Pakistan's permanent mission to the United Nations in Geneva. Beyond her professional and academic accolades, Saima Saleem is the first visually impaired Pakistani woman to be employed by the federal government of Pakistan. To me, this signifies overcoming an adversity not exclusive to any region or nation, but all humans on this planet. For this, we are honored and excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much, uh, Ahmed and Rebecca, uh, for joining us today. Okay, so I want to know a little bit about your personal feelings towards norms and customs that are present in international law, because we as students of uh, international law find that much progress has been made with international law, but still nations bypass it when their national interests collide with it. So given your background in learning international law, what importance do you give to it? I very strongly believe uh, as a student of international law that international law uh, is the way forward for the world if we want peace, progress and prosperity in the world. Without uh, having recourse to international law, we would uh, go back to the eras of world wars and disputes that have been there in the world and the humanity has suffered a lot. For implementing the three pillars of the United Nations, peace and security, development and human rights. I think international law has a significant role to play. Without adherence to norms and principles of international law, we will not be able to advance either the peace and security agenda or development or for that matter human rights agenda internationally for the international community. Else we will go back or resort to power politics 
that's prevalent in the world and where um, might has become a right. Yeah, because part of the, the project that we have here in exploring territorial disputes is more often than not, we see that they're dealt with through the use of force. And we, through the International Law Society, want to just explore perhaps some legal avenues that, that arise with territorial disputes to, to make sure that in the future, perhaps they won't be resolved through the use of force. But uh, let's move on to wh why I came here today. And, and this is to understand the Pakistani position on Kashmir in relation to international law. So uh, to do that, I, I think it's a good idea to go over the history of the partition and what transpired in 1947, or in, even uh, before that, if, if you f uh, feel the need to speak about it. Uh, thank you for that question, uh, which will help the listeners to put into perspective uh, the Kashmir dispute. Uh, after the Second World War, the British, which were the colonizers of the Indian subcontinent, realized that their desire for freedom, and rather I would say self-determination, was pronounced and evident. So in 1947, it was decided that on the basis of Muslim and Hindu majority, two states would be created, partitioning the subcontinent on the basis of Muslim and Hindu majority areas. To go back slightly to the uh, history of Kashmir, I would like to share that in 1846, Treaty of Amritsar was signed by the British with a Hindu king uh, of the Dogra dynasty, in which state of Kashmir, which was one of the princely states out of 562 states at the time of partition, was sold to the Hindu king. And from there, peoples felt that they were deprived of their rights because it was a Muslim majority state. And to be ruled by a tyrannical ruler who was a Hindu was a big issue for them. Even before 1947, there was a quit Kashmir movement in the summer of 1946, where people realized that they had to raise their voices and speak out against the tyrannical rule of a Hindu ruler who was depriving them of many of their rights. And then in 1947, when the British had decided to divide the Indian subcontinent into two states, the partition plan of 3 June 1947 was primarily based on the contiguous majority Muslim areas to be separated with the contiguous non-Muslim majority areas. So, Largely speaking, the partition plan was devised on the lines of the religious divide that existed between the two communities or Hindus and Muslims from centuries and on the basis of which two-nation theory was founded that both are different nations and they needed their own identity. And then Article 7 of the Indian Independence Act of 18 July 1947 stated that the suzerainty of His Majesty over the Indian states lapsed and with it all treaties and agreements in force at the date of the passing of this act between His Majesty and the rulers of the Indian states, which clearly indicated that with the partition of the subcontinent and creation of two independent states, the agreements, legally speaking, signed by the British with any of the states like uh, the Hindu ruler of Jammu and Kashmir in 1846 has also lapsed and these states needed to decide on the basis of their majority population, be it Hindu or Muslim, 
to join one of the two states which were to be created in 1947 india and pakistan the hindu ruler of that time maharaja hari singh uh, did not uh, join initially on 14th and 15th august when pakistan and india were came into existence uh, rather he offered on 11th august 1947 a standstill agreement to both the states that were to be created in on 14th and 15th of august 1947 and government of pakistan decided to accept that standstill agreement on 15th august 1947 in which it was decided the, that the economic and administrative relationship with the state of jammu and kashmir would continue on the same lines as before the partition this in a way established a legal uh, linkage between then independent state of jammu and kashmir and the government of pa- uh, pakistan however the people of kashmir wanted to join pakistan the way other uh, provinces and states had done for example nwfp one of the provinces joined pakistan because it was a majority a muslim majority province so on popular demand the hindu ruler realized that there was an uprising and people could go against his wishes because deep down in his heart being a hindu ruler he wanted to join the indian state and the government of india knowing that kashmir was a strategically important area wanted it to join india as well so on 24th october 1947 the maharaja reached out to the indian government stating that there was a popular uprising going on and he feared that people of his state might announce joining pakistan at this stage the government of india offered him that he would only be provided help and assistance even military assistance if he decides to accede to india and sign an instrument of accession so that's how the uh, the idea of instrument of accession came into existence and uh, maharaja in a way was forced to look into the idea of joining the indian state it was made conditional then it has been reported by the indians that on the 26th of october 1947 an instrument of accession was signed by the maharaja which uh, has been disputed by many historians and uh, uh, alongside with that uh, on the same date and on the following day on 27th of october india sent 10 aircrafts loaded with troops and ammunition to the state of jammu and kashmir to ensure that it can occupy the state of jammu and kashmir uh, and support the hindu ruler there so this is the historical background of how this dispute became visible and eminent in front of the world so as i've said the purpose of the project is to understand whether international territorial disputes can be resolved through international law and so my hope is to highlight the feasibility of that And I think to do that we need to know the issues for the case. And so what you've just discussed there, the instrument of accession, I think brings us to the first kind of evidence or legal issue that kind of arises. So out of a timeline of these events and issues, I had in mind from my understanding of the case, a good place to start would just be to discuss the instrument of accession. Yes sure um I I mean uh from our perspective and from the perspective of the uh, Kashmiri people the instrument of accession is uh, invalidated and does not have any legal standing 
Why I say so? For several reasons. Firstly, according to the historical accounts of many historians, Alistair Lamb and Victoria Schofield and others, Maharaja fled the state of Jammu and Kashmir on 26. He was not even there and they have in detail provided evidence in their history books that perhaps it was signed by VP Menon or not signed at all because the existence of that instrument of accession does not even exist and as of today no authentic copy of the instrument of accession has been presented to the world and perhaps uh, according to some news accounts India claims that it has been stolen so there is no existence of an instrument of accession whether it was signed or not signed at all or whether it, it ever existed has not been corroborated by facts uh, in the last seven decades also any legal document that was signed at that time was published in the white paper of that year so when we look at the white paper of 1948 we do not see the existence of an instrument of accession being published in that white paper and then Maharaja at the time of signing that instrument of accession was not a free agent rather his stance agreement with Pakistan on 15th of August 1947 barred his capacity to enter into a legal agreement with another state because he had already signed an agreement with another state. So legally speaking, he was incapacitated to do so. Also, he had lost control of the territory according to the historical accounts as he had requested on 24th of October 1947 the government of India for help. So a ruler which does not uh, have effective control over his territory cannot sign any instrument of accession or for that matter any agreement on behalf of uh, his people. And also this instrument of accession was contrary to the wishes of the people. And uh, the viceroy of that time, Lord Mountbatten, had himself in response to receiving that instrument of accession if that was uh, agreed upon and received at all, stated that the question of accession of the state of Jammu and Kashmir would be decided by the people and it, this cannot happen without uh, giving it reference to the people. So uh, the instrument of accession uh, of course was not accepted and people were not aware of that. How could it be possible that the Maharaja at that time could sign on to something on behalf of the people of Jammu and Kashmir. In addition to that, a Security Council resolution made this instrument of accessional conditional, if not, you know, invalidated it because the instrument of accession lost its importance after the Security Council resolution, which reaffirmed the right of people of Kashmir uh, of their self-determination through the use of free and fair plebiscite that was proposed later on. In a telegram uh, to the Prime Minister of Pakistan on 31st October, as well as in a telegram on the 1st November to the British Prime Minister, the Indian Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Nehru, had reaffirmed that he would abide by the wishes of the Kashmiri people and they would be given a choice to decide their future. Also, uh, keeping in view the future actions that 
took place uh, which also invalidated the instrument of accession the subsequent actions uh, also invalidated the instrument of accession for example the instrument of accession stated that only defense communication and foreign affairs would be run by the government of india however what happened was slowly and gradually india extended all its laws various articles of its constitution to the state of jammu and kashmir to give uh, the effective control to its occupation forces to rule tyrannically the state of jammu and kashmir um, also in accordance with article 52 of vienna convention on the law of treaty any treaty which is signed by using force is considered null and void and has no legal standing under international law another important aspect to this is uh, that um, after the un charter came into existence article 102 of the un charter states uh, that every treaty or every agreement that is signed between member states shall have to be submitted to the un and that never happened and till to date the instrument of accession has not been submitted to the un and its official copy does not ex- uh, exist which clearly demonstrates that instrument of accession in in actuality does not exist it was a ploy used by the indian government to take effective control of the territory and it amounts to occupation under international law so you've uh, discussed um the instrument of accession and how it relates to security council uh, resolutions Uh, and I, and that's the next thing that we're going to talk about. So what transpires during 1947 though in that area becomes a threat to international peace and security and uh, thus the issue is brought to the attention of the UN Security Council. So what is the importance of the UN Security Council and and the resolution it passes um in international law because we've got, kind of gone over how it was brought under chapter 6 and how states look at what's binding in international law in our previous podcast so if you can just go over the importance of the Secure- security council and its resolutions well um security council resolutions are very significant when it comes to international law they help to uh, establish many norms and principles of international law as we have witnessed in the last almost 8 decades that security council resolutions have been contributing to the formation of uh, international law when it comes to conflicts when it comes to situations of foreign occupation when it comes to uh, for example women peace and security they establish the norms and that are later on codified by different conventions and different subsequent resolutions uh, there is jurisprudence on them and they have been used in the court of laws internationally in the international court of justice international criminal tribunal on rwanda international criminal tribunal on yugoslavia so they are very significant in terms of bringing about a change and contributing to some of the pressing challenges of peace and security in the world with regard to security council resolution or security council action basically under the united nations charter security council considers any situation under chapter 6 which is specific settlement of dispute and under chapter 7 which is a threat to international peace and security uh, under the specific settlement of dispute it discusses different 
means and methods of how to resolve conflicts in particular under article 33 and 34 of the UN charter in which uh, different uh, means of settlement of dispute could be employed and used like negotiation, mediation, conciliation, arbitration and judicial decisions as well. So it is interesting that India uh, on 1 January 1948 brought the issue of Kashmir under chapter 6 of the UN Charter, not under chapter 7. And it also contributes to our understanding that this question was brought in front of the Security Council, realizing that there is a dispute that exists between the two states, India and Pakistan, on, on Kashmir. So uh, that is how it was evolved. And it is a sad reality that India today does not accept the Security Council resolutions or its own complaint to the Security Council that it brought in 1948. The most significant aspect of Security Council resolution is that they cannot be invalidated. They have a normative importance under international law. They can only be fulfilled by consent of the parties or through an enforcement action of the Security Council or a subsequent decision of the Security Council which would develop an understanding of how things would be in terms of taking uh, action or implementation on the ground. The most significant uh, aspect of this is that none of this has happened in the context of Kashmir. Those resolutions are important and valid till today because no implementation has taken place. So they stand under international law as an important enforcement mechanism that have not been implemented and that has to be implemented at some stage in time. So India's argument that those Security Council resolutions have perhaps lapsed with time are flawed because international law does not have an expiry date. I want to uh, stay on the, the Security Council and its resolutions, um, mainly because f from our research, th they, for the Pakistani case, represent the, the most uh, important uh, aspect. And so can you go over the early Security Council resolutions on Jammu and Kashmir? Sure. The first Security Council resolution that was passed on uh, Jammu and Kashmir uh, was Resolution 38 on 17 January 1948 and the resolution took note of the situation and asked both the parties India and Pakistan that if there is any material change it should report to the Security Council. Then on 28th January resolution 39 was passed and the most significant aspect of this resolution is that uh, United Nations Commission for India and Pakistan was set up comprising of three members uh, whose members were later increased to five. Then the most important landmark resolution which highlighted the right of people of Kashmir to self-determination is resolution 47. It was passed on 21 April 1947. And I would like to share a very interesting fact that this resolution was jointly co-sponsored by Belgium, Canada, China, Colombia, UK and US. And today, because of power politics, uh, we do not see some of the P5 countries active on raising the issue of Kashmir 
at the United Nations. And it was uh, followed by another resolution in June 1948, which is Resolution 51, which asked the United Nations Commission on India and Pakistan to take concrete measures to ensure ceasefire and ensure that plebiscite takes place in Jammu and Kashmir and highlighting its uh, disputed nature. So this was followed by uh, several meetings of the UN Commission on uh, India and Pakistan and the UN CIF uh, passed two resolutions, on one on 13th August 1948, the other one on 5 January 1949. These two resolutions essentially covered three aspects, ceasefire, uh, demilitarization and conducting of plebiscite. So India and Pakistan both agreed for a ceasefire in January 1949 as a consequence of these two resolutions of the Commission and they also discussed the modalities of conducting a plebiscite at that time. However, there was lack of agreement on the issue of demilitarization because India has stationed its troops there. Another um, important resolution that was passed in 1950 was regarding the reaffirmation of the right of uh, Kashmiri people to self-determination and taking a concrete step by appointing a plebiscite administrator who would conduct plebiscite in the occupied territory of Jammu and Kashmir and Admiral Chester W. Nimis was appointed as the plebiscite administrator. So I want to move away from the Security Council resolutions uh, for a moment, or actually you might even perhaps talk about them in this topic here, because there's an event that takes place in 1951 inside Kashmir. And, and what I'm referring to is the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. And could you just explain what that is and its legality in international law? Um, okay, thank you for this question. It's very important and significant and it is often cited as an excuse to uh, not uh, fulfill obligation under the Security Council resolution. So basically, uh, there are two resolutions of the Security Council, Resolution 91 and 122, which clearly outline that any decision by the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir will not constitute a replacement of the uh, determination of the future uh, shape of state of Jammu and Kashmir that has been decided in accordance with the Security Council resolution. So. From the perspective of international law, any decision by any domestic constituent assembly cannot have an overriding effect over norms and principles and decisions uh, uh, that are taken within the ambit of international law. And Security Council resolution form an important part and parcel of those norms and principles. And a historical fact is that the constituent assembly was a sham assembly as 73 out of 75 of its members were not elected on contested seats. So uh, that, that, that highlights the significance of the fact that any decision taken by an occupying power cannot have an overriding effect on the decisions and the norms that have been set out under international law. Okay, and so after that, we want to go on to 1971 and um, basically the, the war is crucial and the, and the ramification it has for Jammu and Kashmir because out of this war we get the Simla agreement 
Um, so could you explain this agreement and if it uh, collides against the Security Council resolutions in the context of international law and how does Pakistan see the Simla agreement? Your question with regard to Simla agreement is very significant because Indians often um, cite it as, as an excuse for not fulfilling their obligation under the Security Council resolution. So I would like to highlight a few things. The Simla agreement was signed under the auspices of the UN Charter and it mentions UN Charter a few times in the text itself and preambular part highlights the principles and purposes of the UN Charter then article 2 paragraph 4 of the charter is quoted in the Simla agreement so uh, any bilateral agreement in this case simla agreement was not divorced from pakistan or india's international obligation and was discussed and negotiated within the ambit of international law and un charter itself yes the simla agreement does mention the bilateral nature of the dispute that bilaterally both the countries would continue to discuss the outstanding issues but in the same paragraph uh, it mentions that other peaceful means mutually agreed upon by them would continue to also be utilized and by those peaceful means we are again referring to the pacific settlement of dispute under chapter 6 of the un charter and in this context the complaint to the security council was brought in under the the un charter chapter 6 unfortunately in violation of the provision of the vienna convention on of the law of treaties this bilateral agreement was not negotiated by india in good faith and till today india refuses to engage in a constructive bilateral dialogue on the dispute of jammu and kashmir and uh, this simla agreement is often cited as an excuse again uh, according to the article 103 of the un charter in the event of a conflict between any member states obligation and bilateral agreement the un charter will have the overriding effect and state obligations have to be in line with the un charter itself so at no stage simla agreement was uh, negotiated finalized discussed and till to date it cannot have a bilateral agreement like simla cannot have an overriding effect on the resolutions of the security council so they stay in place the bilateral aspect was just to ensure that some of the outstanding issues for example on demilitarization on ceasefire uh, could be achieved a dimension of territorial disputes are the obligations a state has to a territory it de facto controls under international law what are pakistan's obligations in pakistan administered kashmir and your thoughts on indian administered kashmir well uh, it is pakistan as part being party to the dispute which has been uh, consistently highlighting and uh, asking for the implementation of the security council resolution to grant a right of self determination to the people of kashmir and from right of self determination all civil political economic rights flow and today anyone can go to azad jammu and kashmir and see for themselves that people have all the rights and they enjoy complete freedom 
we have invited many international observers in media uh, can go there however um, in the case of indian occupied kashmir um, no one is allowed to visit that occupied territory the international media does not have access and after 5 august 2019 uh, there is a complete siege of the territory with regard to the obligation that an occupying power which has effective control as in the case of india over the occupied territory it has been well established that international human rights humanitarian and criminal law are applicable in those contexts and unfortunately uh, india has not fulfilled its obligation as the occupying power not even what resolution 47 of the security council in para 12 13 and 14 stated with regard to rights of the kashmiris uh, kashmiri people are deprived of not only of their right to self determination there is a demographic change going on indian government has introduced laws under which they are granting domicile to non kashmiris and up till now 4.2 million domicile certificate have been issued which are a violation of article 49 of the fourth geneva convention in addition to that there are extrajudicial killings rape and gang rape of women enforced disappearances uh, denial of freedom of opinion and expression uh, freedom of religion uh, there is rampant arbitrary detentions torture uh, and the list goes on and on so uh, from the perspective of international law india is in breach of its obligation as a state party to many of the conventions including international covenant on civil and political rights international covenant on economic social and cultural rights and this fact has been highlighted by the office of the high commissioner for human rights in its two reports of 2018 and 2019 all the violations that are taking place uh, place in indian occupied kashmir by the international media by uh, international human rights organization like the amnesty international human rights watch um, etc and uh, also the special procedures of the human rights council have been expressing concern on the human rights violations going on in the indian, indian occupied kashmir treaty bodies have given several recommendation to the indian government and repeal of some of the draconian laws in the occupied territory which have promoted culture of impunity just to share some of the figures that since 1989 more than 1 lakh kashmiris have been extrajudicially killed more than 23000 women widowed more than 11000 women raped and gang raped and more than 8000 people have been enforced disappeared and also thousands of unmarked mass graves have been discovered another phenomena that has emerged is the use of pellet guns um, and perhaps in the indian occupied jammu and kashmir mass blinding that is taking place is can be considered as the worst ever in history and i i don't think so history has any example of such at such a scale of mass blinding that is happening by the use of excessive force and uh, i mean i can talk for hours on the human rights violation <laughs> I'm but sure you should. yes and okay so kind of going in in that direction um we're now going to be focusing on the, the the recent events in kashmir 
and uh, which Rebecca has been focusing on and the international human rights law in that area. So you just mentioned self-determination and I would like you to further explain the concept of self-determination in international law, how it is recognized internationally and again how it applies to Jammu and Kashmir, both because I believe it's a factor that is critical to the Pakistani position, but also because it's something that is interesting to students of international law. Um, thank you for the question. I, I think uh, right to self-determination has today become preemptory norm of international law. After the Second World War, the right of self-determination became important because a lot of countries, um, as, as an outcome of the decolonization process, gained independent um, in exercise of their right to self-determination. And for that matter, India and Pakistan became two independent states by exercising right of their self-determination in which people are granted their right to exercise their political will as to how they would like to be governed, whether they would like to be an independent state. And today, if we look at several uh, conventions and treaties and declarations that have been adopted in 1966, when the two covenants uh, were adopted, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, both have the right to self-determination as part of their Article 1. And unfortunately, India, because it wanted to continue to deny right to self-determination to the people of Jammu and Kashmir as enshrined in the Security Council resolution, so it has entered a declaration on this preemptory norm of international law and according to Article 19C of the Vienna Convention of the, on the Law of Treaties that defeats the object and purpose of the treaty to which India became a party itself. In addition to that, a right of self-determination has been upheld by the International Court of Justice in its several decisions including a decision on Namibia, on West uh, Sahara and uh, right to self-determination has also been reaffirmed by Indian leadership in the late 1940s and early 1950s and uh, any statement by a head of state and a head of government is regarded as, as a principle and has a, a legal value that has been reaffirmed by again permanent court of international justice and also in international court of justice in many of its judgments and i think uh, till today right to self-determination is an important right which has a lot of significance for many people who are experiencing foreign occupation like people of jammu and kashmir and are facing many conflicts around the world okay so on to recent events i want to end with the removal of Article 370 and 35A, which gave Indian administered Jammu and Kashmir its special status. And what does that mean for international law? Because this change to the status quo will inevitably impact the people of Kashmir. And out of this arises a sort of new reality. So could you please explain your thoughts and your position on these actions? Uh, the action taken by the Indian government on 5 August uh, 2019 um, uh, by abrogating Article 370 and 35A of the Indian Constitution 
is a blatant violation of international law uh, to begin with. Just to give you a brief historical background that Indian constitution was adopted in 1949 and article 370 was included as a temporary provision to just establish a temporary linkage with the occupied state of Jammu and Kashmir and to ensure that, that there is a provision that exists through which India will ensure some kind of governance or the administrative status. And Article 31A, which deals with the, who is the permanent uh, citizen of the state, and it was inserted in 1954. Uh, with regard to the legality of the abrogation of Article 370 and uh, Article 35A is concerned, firstly, they invalidate the so-called instrument of accession. Why I say this? Because uh, the instrument of accession has three clauses, clause 5, 7 and 8, which clearly stated from the side of the Maharaja that no change would be brought in about by the Indian government without the consent of the Maharaja and involvement of the Indian, the Jammu and Kashmir state. In this case, this decision has been taken by the Indian government unilaterally and the uh, state of Jammu and Kashmir, which is occupied by India, has been subsumed into the Indian Union territory and it has been bifurcated into two Union territories, Ladakh and Jammu, which even from the perspective of the so-called instrument of accession is illegal and uh, the, the action does not have any legal standing. As far as uh, Security Council resolutions and international law is concerned, by doing so, India has, for all practical purposes, uh, converted its occupation of the Jammu and Kashmir into an annexation, which is illegal under international law because Pakistan, uh, people of Kashmir and India are party to the dispute. And without recourse to Security Council resolution, this dispute cannot be resolved by a unilateral action of one of the parties. So by doing uh, that, India has called into question its uh, international obligations and commitments. And that has led to three meetings of the Security Council after the illegal unilateral action uh, by India. And just three days after this unilateral action on 8 August 2019, the UN Secretary General has highlighted that the situation of the disputed territory would be governed by the Security Council resolutions. And for that matter, India's unilateral action have no locus standi under international law. Thank you so much. Do you have any closing remarks before we finish? Um, uh, thank you so much uh, for giving us the opportunity to share Pakistan's perspective. As for students of international law, I would say that um, it is significant that uh, there is adherence to principles and norms of international law. Only then we can ensure peace and security in the world. And it is high time that uh, political considerations economic advantages of states and their uh, alliances are not uh, given primacy over international law. So we should try to promote norms and principles of international law. Only then we can have a peaceful and just order in the world that will help us 
to ensure that we resolve some of the important conflicts today which are impacting on the lives of millions of people around the world uh, can be resolved thank you so much um thank you so much uh, for your time today in explaining the pakistani position on jammu and kashmir thank you Everything you heard in this episode was essentially to allow a Pakistani representative to present their case and thoughts on Jammu and Kashmir. To best understand this territorial dispute under international law, we believe it is vital that we hear from the nations involved in the dispute and listen to their interpretations of international law relating to the territory. Our next podcast will aim to present the Indian case for their position on Jammu and Kashmir relating to international law. I want to thank you for tuning in today. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and make sure to subscribe to hear our future episodes. The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that citizens of Crimea, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. Better late than that never. The UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and this should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. This is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination.